next uh, four weeks, we are going to be looking at the mission, vision, and values of uh, CBTC. Now, relax, we're not going to be engaging in sloganeering or, you know, branding of any kind. Uh, the, the whole purpose of us doing this is so that you can know the heart of the session toward you. Um, what do we want people who come to CBTC to know? Uh, what, what, what emphasis do we want for your life? Oh, what do we pray for for you? Well, we pray, if you look at your um, bulletin, we pray that your lives are transformed through following Jesus and the message of the gospel. It is our hope and prayer that you are discipled through worship, fellowship, and service. These are things that we pray for each and every one of you, that when you walk through these doors, that your lives are transformed through the gospel. And so what we're going to do for the next four weeks is we're going to take one theme um, through our mission, vision, and values, and we're going to teach on those. So today we're going to be doing worship. Next week we're going to be doing transformation. Week number three we're going to be doing fellowship. And the fourth week we're going to be doing service. And the hope and prayer is that through doing that you know who we are and you know what our desires for your heart and your mind is. That's the goal and purpose for that. So today we're going to start off with worship, and we're going to start with Isaiah 6. This is one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. Um, you know, as I was putting together the sermon, I said, Dennis, uh, you need to restrain yourself from saying everything there could be said about this passage, because it's so easy, so easy. This passage is full with so many illusions of the gospel and who Jesus is and worship in general. But you'll be happy to know I restrained myself. And I'm only going to be focusing on one aspect of this text for us today. But I would like to read the entire passage, Isaiah chapter 6. Hear now the word of the Lord. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne high and lifted up. And the train of, the ro of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him. He called, and the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips, for my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. And the one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. And I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who shall go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to the people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but 
do not perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Then I said, How long, O Lord? And he said, Until cities lie waste without inhabitants and houses without people, and the land is desolate waste, and the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land, and though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again like a terebinth or an oak, whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Full all flesh is as grass, and the glory of man as the flower of grass. The grass withers, and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord shall endure forever. And this is the word that will be taught unto you. Amen and amen. Well, um, if you want to teach someone about what worship looks like, do you know where you go? Anybody? That's right. You go here. You go here. You go to Isaiah 6. And the reason why you go to Isaiah 6 is because Isaiah 6 is that passage. And by the way, it is Isaiah. That's how we'll be saying it in heaven. Okay? There's all sorts of people that say it differently. It's Isaiah, right? But, but if you go to Isaiah 6, you will see a pattern for worship. It's a pattern for worship. Look, look at the passage, right? The passage starts off with this call to worship. Yahweh seated high above the throne, inviting us into worship. Not only that, but you see adoration, the angels praising the Lord. And then, of course, also, if you drop down, you see confession in verse number 5. And then, of course, you see gospel renewal in verse 6 and 7. And then, of course, 8, down to the end of the chapter, you see service. Now, if you say to yourself, Pastor, that sounds familiar, that's because that's the pattern of our worship. Our worship is patterned after Isaiah 6. Every aspect of this is rooted in Scripture. Our worship, we worship here at CVCC by the book. Everything we do is because of what's written in this text. Now, you might be looking at me and saying, Pastor, well, why don't we have smoke machines, according to verse number four? (laughs) All right, calm down. What's happening in this text in verse number four isn't that we should have smoke machines filling all of our sanctuary. The whole point of this is to show that Yahweh's glory is eternal. It fills everywhere. That's what the incense in the tabernacle meant. And they were to burn it continuously to signify God's presence in worship. Doesn't mean we should have fog machines. It means that we should pray often for God's uh, presence to be among us. Let me tell you something, young people, especially. Now, some of you, you'll grow up and you'll leave CVPC. We'll all be sad about that. But when you go out into the world and you're looking for a church, When you go into that church, I want you to see the worship in that church. And if the worship in that church does not look like Isaiah 6, don't go back. 
Now, I know that's a strong thing for me to say. But, you know, I kind of think I'm on solid biblical ground when I say it. That's the power behind this passage. It gives us a pattern for worship. It tells us exactly what we're supposed to do in worship. Make sure whatever church you go to, their worship looks like this. Because this is an example of heavenly worship. Now, the second thing I want to tell you is this. This passage is significant because this passage teaches each and every one of us what worship is supposed to do to us. That's what this passage is, um, does. Notice how this passage shows us that worship is supposed to awaken us to the power and majesty of God. One of my favorite uh, uh, songs that we sing um, it's written by John Calvin, at least it's attributed to John Calvin. I don't know if John Calvin actually wrote it. I wasn't there when he wrote it. But the song is, I greet thee whom my sure redeemer art. And you all know that song. Everybody should know that song. In fact, if you don't know the song, go and look it up and read through it. It's a powerful song. But there's a line in there. There is a line in there that everyone in this building should know. And here's the line. Calvin wrote, at least it's a tribute to him, he said this, So come, O king, and our whole being sway, shine on us with the light of thy pure day. There is no greater statement written in hymnody that explains what our desire and worship should be, that God sways our whole being. Our whole being is swayed because of worship. When you come into worship, your entire being should be impacted by everything that is said and everything that is done. That's what Calvin is saying. Calvin is saying that worship should be a life reorienting event. And why is that the case? Think about the last six days, how this world has diminished our view of God. That we are stained by this world. That we are corrupted by this world. So when we come into worship, what do we need? We need a life reorienting event. We need to see Yahweh high and lifted up. That's all we need to see. At our very core, that's what we need. A life reorienting event. That's why worship at CVPC is the most important thing that we do. That's why worship should be the most important thing you do. When I went to seminary, um, I worked underneath a godly pastor. Um, his name is Roger Collins. Uh, uh, well, yes, his name is Roger Collins. Uh, most of you know him. His son goes here. I don't see him in worship. He'll probably downstairs. Um, but, but Roger Collins. And I'll never forget, um, we had Maddie at the time. Uh, did we? I, I think Maddie was in the womb at the time. But at any rate, he sat us down, and, and he met with us as a young couple. And one of the first questions he asked us, he said, Dennis, do you worship with your family? Do you worship privately? That was the first question he asked us. And to my shame, I looked at him, and I said, no. At least not regularly, like every now and then. And he looked at me and Teresa, and he said this. He said, you all need to worship together. And then he said these words, and I'll never forget it. He said, listen to me. Worship doesn't solve all of your problems, 
but it, sur- it solves the most important problem, and that is the condition of your heart. Worship doesn't solve all of your problems. It won't. Right? You're still going to have problems. You're still going to struggle to pay the bills. You're still going to get frustrated. You're still going to have all sorts of problems in your life. But the one thing that worship is designed to do is solve the biggest problem, and that's the condition of your heart. And I am living proof. Theresa will tell you there are so many times in my family where we're at odds with each other, we've been picking at each other, frustrated at each other, angry with one another. And then we come to the table and we worship together. And our whole being is healed. God does something to us. God does something to our children. Our whole house is changed. Why? Because we worship. Now, even if you're single, this principle still works true. You need worship. In fact, I want to challenge each and every one of you inside here today. Plan to worship at least three times this, uh, you know, for the rest of the year, three times a week outside of gathered worship. Again, it won't solve all your problems, but I guarantee you, it will solve the biggest problem, and that's the condition of your heart. You'll notice that when you worship, you become less selfish, less self-absorbed. That your mental health will improve. That your relationships with the people around you are improved. Everything changes when you worship. When you worship. We need to be a people about worship because there's nothing that sways and changes our being. Like being in the presence of Yahweh. It's a life reorienting experience. And so I want to challenge each and every one of you. If you're a husband, head of your home, set aside three days for worship. If you say, well, Pastor Dennis, that's too much, then do two. If you're a young person inside you today, there's no reason why you can't set aside three afternoons or three mornings to worship the living God. All of us in this room should be worshipers because there is nothing else that reorients our hearts and minds like worship. Nothing else. William Temple, the Archbishop of Canterbury, uh, that means he's Anglican, for those of you that don't know. And that's okay. That's okay he's Anglican. They're like our second cousins. It's okay. Right? Here's Here's what William Temple says about worship, the power of worship in our lives. He said, worship is the submission of all of our nature to God in every aspect of who we are. And notice what he says. First of all, he says, it's the quickening of our conscience by his holiness. That's what happened to Isaiah here. His conscience was quickened by the holiness of God, the power of God. What does it mean to have your conscience quickened By the holiness of God. It means you become aware of who you are and those around you. And he also says that it's the nourishment of our mind with his truth. What happens in worship? You are confronted with truth. Let me tell you something. There's nothing that harms your mental health more than lies. Nothing. In fact, one noted psychologist, I've seen years ago I read this. One noted psychologist says this. 
if you, the one thing you can do to radically change your life, to radically improve your mental health, to radically comp- uh, improve the condition of your mind, heart, and soul is start telling the truth. Above exercise, above eating right, above everything else, start telling the truth about who you are and about who other people around you are. And the only thing that I know of that produces truth, unvarnished truth, is the Word of God. You want to change your life? Stop lying and stop being around people who lie and pretend and are fake. And start spending time with people who are real and honest and who tell the truth. You know, one of the reasons why I married my wife, I mean, besides her beauty, my wife is the most honest person I know. The most honest person I know. I can go to her at any time and ask her a question and she tells me the truth. Man, that's the kind of people you want to be around. Truth tellers. And there's nothing in the world Nothing in the world that confronts you with truth more than God's word. Temple didn't stop there. He says, nothing purifies the imagination more than God's beauty. Opens our hearts to love like worshiping the living God and surrender of our wills to his purposes. That's what worship does. All of that is what worship does to us. That's the beauty and the power of worship. Now, with the time that I have remaining, I don't have much of it, I want to spend the rest of our time looking at how worship impacts our hearts and minds, at least from this passage, right? And there are two things I want to show us. First of all, worship is supposed to awaken us to the glory of God. And second is this, worship is supposed to awaken us to our sinful condition. First of all, worship is supposed to awaken us to the awesome glory of God. You remember a few weeks back, I told you all that if you want to understand Hebrew literature, if you want to understand the Old Testament, there's one key, and the key is this, contrast. Everybody say it with me, contrast. Just remember that. Say it to yourself a bunch of times, and then read the Old Testament. And the Old Testament will open up like it's never opened up before because it's all about contrast. And if you look at this passage, specifically from verse 1 through 4, you see an amazing contrast. Now, here, let me set up the contrast for you. In the Old Testament, there are three things that people worshipped instead of God, three things that usurped the worship of God in people's heart and mind. The first one is a king. Or a leader. The second one is the worship of angels or heavenly bodies. And the third one is the worship of systems. Or more importantly for Israel, the law. Now look at your Bible. What do you see Yahweh is supreme over? First of all, in verse number one, it says the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. The first contrast is this. It's a contrast between a dead king and a living king. That's the first contrast. Listen, Isaiah made Israel great again or built Israel better back, whatever you want to say, right? That's what Isaiah did. In fact, if you read 
the book of Chronicles. By the way, book of Chronicles is my favorite book. I know some of you all fall asleep when you read the book of Chronicles. Not me, right? I'm in heaven when I read the book of Chronicles. And partly because of this, if you read through the book of Chronicles, I tell you, you will, you will bust out laughing. Because imagine having to write an entire history of Israel when the majority of the times all you say about the kings is that they did evil in the sight of the Lord and the Lord smote them. Over and over and over again. That's all they said. Over and over again. They did evil in sight of the Lord. But there were three kings in Israel's history that were the high watermark of the kingship. King David, King Solomon, and King Uzziah. There were no one in Israel like him. He put Israel at the top. Everyone had their hopes and dreams and desires wrapped up in King Uzziah. But something happened to King Uzziah. And you can read this in 2 Chronicles <coughs> chapter 26. King Uzziah believed his own height. He believed that he was above the law. And so one day he went into the temple and he tried to offer sacrifices. And what happened to him? The priest came and they tried to withstand him, but he wouldn't listen. And then Yahweh showed up and gave him leprosy and he died. And so the point of this passage, first and foremost, is this. Everyone loved the king. Everyone put their hopes in the king. But now the king is dead. And who is alive? Yahweh. And he's not just alive. He's high and lifted up. He's better than a thousand kings. Each and every one of us inside here today will die and pass away. But who will remain? Yahweh, king of Israel. High and lifted up. So he shows his supremacy over earthly kings. Notice also <coughs> the angels. Do you realize outside of God, there is no other being more powerful than angels? In fact, the Bible tells us we were made lower than the angels. Everyone worshipped angels. Their power was unmatched. And what do we see in this passage? Well, we see angels bowing down and worshipping God in antiphonal praise. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full with his glory. What are they saying? They're saying there's no other being like Yahweh. He's not holy once. He's the tri-sigion, the most holy being imaginable. He is transcendent above all else. There's no other being, no other power, nothing that we could think of that is more holy and righteous and pure and exalted than God of heaven. That's what the Bible says. And you know, I could tell you this, that God is not to be trifled with. Because he's holy. He's majestic. A God like that is worthy of your adoration. And so the angels, these powerful beings, these mighty beings. You know, if you read through the Bible, what, the angels killed entire cities, wiped out entire uh, nations. And here they are bowing down to the king of kings and worshiping him. He's the one that's holy, holy, holy. But he's not just holy in the abstract. His holiness is of benefit to you. Um, this morning, we dealt with the, the fall of man. And, and George read a passage in which he said that um, he, God told Adam, in the day that you eat of the fruit, you shall surely die. You know, in the Hebrew, 
It's very distinct because it says that if you eat of the fruit, not that you shall surely die. It actually says, and dying you will die. In other words, it's a complete death. That when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit, they died completely. There's a repetition there that emphasized their death. Dying, they will die. And that's exactly what happened. And do you know the only person who could reverse that dying, you will die? The one who is holy, holy, holy. That's the application of the holiness of God. He has to be the trice agion, the holy, 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 because it's only Yahweh that could reverse the dying, you will die. His holiness reverses the curse for all of us. That's why when we come into worship, we need to see Yahweh high and lifted up. Above everything else. Above everything else. Notice also in verse number four, we see God's supremacy over the temple. It said the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called out. Every aspect of the temple. And it shows his supremacy over the temple. Now, why, why did God show Isaiah this vision? Well, the simple answer is this. Isaiah needed to be awakened. Isaiah needed to be awakened. One commentator put it like this. As so often the case, increased wealth had brought about a diminished view of God so that the people felt secure in their sins as long as they performed the appropriate rituals. Isn't it always the case? You give a people a bunch of money, a bunch of power, a bunch of time, and you give them a nice, comfortable existence. And what happens? God becomes diminished. You know, when I was growing up, there was a statement um, that people often made. And it went a little something like this. Familiarity breeds contempt. You all heard that statement before? You know, one of the greatest challenges of you all, and something that I pray for a lot, is this. We live in the South. Most of you probably grew up going to worship. You know, if you're anything like me, your parents dragged you to worship regularly. You sat underneath the teachings regularly. And you heard the sermons, right? And some of you are looking at me, shaking your head like, yes, pastor, that's me. And what happens in the midst of that? We become so comfortable with God, he becomes diminished in our sight. Nobody can preach anything that we haven't heard. Nobody can say anything to move us. And so what happens? Yahweh becomes diminished in our sight. We come into worship and we're unaffected by it. Because why? Why are we unaffected by it? Simply because familiarity breeds contempt. Beloved, if there's one thing you and I need to fight against, those of us that come to church regularly, that are around the things of God regularly, the one thing we need to fight against with everything we have is to make sure we're not comfortable with God. You know, that happened to Uzzah. You read your Bible. Remember Uzzah? Uzzah's my kind of guy, you know? Hey, if Uzzah lived today, he grew up in North Georgia. You know, he had the accent. He was a great guy. Loved the Lord. 
Went to church all his life. In fact, the ark was in his house. He saw it every day. And what happened to Uzzah? Uzzah got comfortable with God. Familiarity breeds contempt. And that's why when the ark was being transported and it shook a little bit and it almost fell, he just put out his hand to touch the ark. No, Uzzah, you're not supposed to do that. What are you doing, buddy? And you know, I used to get a little angry at God. Confession time here, right? I used to get angry at the Lord because I always wanted to know, why would you kill Uzzah? Man, Uzzah was a good guy. But the reason why Yahweh had to kill Uzzah is because he got too familiar with God. Uh-huh. And that familiarity began to breed contempt, and Uzzah thought he could just stick out his hand and hold the ark. Instead of resting in God's provision for how he said he was going to take care of the ark. Beloved, you and I need to fight against this, this poison in our heart of being too comfortable with God and too comfortable with what he says. Because it's costly. But notice also the love and power of God in that he revealed himself he reveals himself to Isaiah, even though Isaiah has this diminished view of God. When Isaiah come, came into the temple, you know what Yahweh didn't do? Yahweh didn't say, you know what? You're diminished in my sight, so I'm going to hide my face from you. You know, we often do that. You know, if somebody messes with us or we're angry at someone, we avoid them and I like the plague, you know. I remember a church I grew up in, you could always tell when people are upset with one another. You know, they change where they seat. Or where they sit, you know, if they normally sit on the right, if they're upset with somebody, they go on the left. You know, we often do that. We do that in our own homes, too. We get angry at our wives. We don't want to move around and don't want to talk to them instead of going to them and saying, I'm sorry, I was a jerk, whatever it is, right? Some of you may need to do that when you leave here, but such is the case, right? But, but notice what happens. Yahweh, Yahweh reveals himself to Isaiah. He was never the same again. In fact, the Bible says, if you read through the rest of Isaiah, he became, he referred to God as the Holy One of Israel. It was a life-dominating experience for Isaiah. But not just Isaiah. You read through the Bible, and there's a host of people that that was the case. Think of Moses when he saw the glory of God. Moses was never the same again. He went from being this selfish, prideful man to being a man who was meek and humble. Or what about Paul on the road of Damascus when he saw the God, Jesus Christ before him? His life was radically changed as a result. Or Peter when he saw the glory of Christ, the resurrected Christ. He said, depart from me, I'm a sinful man. Beloved, when we get a vision for who God is, we cannot be the same. We cannot be the same. Whenever we meet people who say that they know the Lord and we see no change in them, we need to call foul. Because I could tell you right now, when you come into contact with the king of heaven, you cannot be the same. The things of this earth must grow strangely dim. Our desire for 
food or sport or sex or money or power. All of those things diminish when Christ is high and lifted up. We cannot do the same. We cannot do the same. Now, final thing. He wakens us to the condition of who we are. Notice with me in verse 5. When, when Isaiah sees God high and lifted up, he's awakened to the things of God. He is, his world is rocked by Yahweh. He says, woe is me, for I am lost, for I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. Now hear me today. When he says that I am a man of unclean lips, he's not saying that he has a cussing problem. Right? It's not that he's dropping F-bombs and everybody around him is dropping F-bombs. That's not what he's saying. He's actually saying something more profound. And here's what he's saying. Isaiah says, the reason why he says that I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips is because he has seen what true worship looks like. He's seen it. Now, look, there's another layer to this. I wish I had time to talk about this. But, but here's the, quickly, here's the other layer of this. The Jews prided themselves on being people who worshipped God rightly. If you go to John 4, what did Jesus say to the woman at the well? He says, woman, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshipers will worship God in spirit and truth. You Samaritans don't know what worship looks like. We, the Jews, know what worship looks like because salvation belongs to the Jews. What is he saying here? No one knows what worship looks like but the Jews. Their entire life was governed by worship. What they ate, what they wore, where they went, everything was governed by worship. Worship belongs to the Jews. Nobody worshiped like the Jews. But then what happened? He saw what true worship looks like, and he said, you know what? What we were doing before was blasphemy. Was absolute blasphemy. I wasn't worshiping the Lord. I was worshiping myself. And more importantly this, the greatest inhibitor of worship is our own sin. That's why at the end, the one seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal, and he had taken from the tongues of the altar, and he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips, your guilt is taken away, and your sins are atoned for. What is happening here? He's dealing with the greatest inhibitor to our worship, and that's our own sinfulness. And notice two things real quick. First of all, he says, your guilt is taken away, and your sin is atoned for. Most of us inside here today have heard that Jesus died for our sins, to take away our sins. That's the atoning for. But do you realize that when Jesus died on the cross, something else happened? He took away your guilt. And you know what one of the inhibitors of worship is? Not just your sin proper, but the guilt and shame you feel in the presence of the Lord. I, I taught Greek at a local classical school. I, I think I mentioned the story before, but I taught Greek at a local classical school, and I would often teach um, a Greek word, elasmos. It means propitiation. And it, sometimes it could mean expitiation as well. But whenever I talked to the young people, I would often tell them, yes, Jesus died for your sins, but he did something else for you. He took away your guilt and shame. And invariably, invariably, there was one or two people in there. Every class I taught, I taught about five of those classes. Every class I taught, there was a young lady or a young man who would immediately start 
start crying. Now, at first, I always was like, man, what's going on? I don't think I'm being used. But then it dawned on me. Their whole lives, they heard that Christ died for their sins. But the one thing they never heard was that Christ died for their guilt and shame. And to make them clean again. Yes, they were saved. They knew it. But they never thought they could feel clean again because of the sins that they committed. They didn't realize that Christ died to make them absolutely 100% clean so they could feel no guilt in his presence. And isn't that what um, David said in Psalm 51? When David is before the Lord, David says, Create in me a clean heart, O Lord, and renew a right spirit in me. David wanted to be clean because David knew that the only way we can truly worship Yahweh is if we've been made completely clean. Now, what's the big takeaway? Well, the big takeaway is what Jesus said to the woman at the well. When he said, the hour is coming and now is when the true worshiper will worship Yahweh in spirit and in truth. CBBC, that day has arrived. That day has arrived. Welcome. Right? As they used to say when I was growing up, you could party like it's 1999. Why? Because we can worship the Lord in spirit and in truth. This is the whole purpose of Jesus coming. You notice in uh, verse number four, the foundations of the threshold shook. We, uh, I wish I had time to go through each and every aspect of, of statements like this in this passage, but I'll end with this one. The shaking of the foundations here in verse number four was meant to prefigure another shaking that happened in Matthew 27 when Jesus died on the cross. The Bible said that the curtain in the temple was torn in two and the earth shook and the rocks split. What does that signify for God's people, us Gentiles, that all of our guilt, every single barrier has been taken away for worship? Your sins have been atoned for. You've been cleansed by the blood of the Lamb. You've been reconciled to God. You have access now to the throne room. No more barriers to worship. You can come in and worship Yahweh in spirit and in truth. We all, with open hearts and minds, can say like Calvin says, Oh, come, O King, and our whole being sway. Shine on us with the light of thy pure day. Father, we thank you. We thank you for the power of worship. We thank you that worship is a life-altering experience. And we as your people can indeed experience that. I thank you so much for the power of your word that shakes us to our core. And it's meant to. It's meant to. Lord, we need you to see you high and lifted up. Lord, uh, guard our hearts against familiarity with you. Guard our hearts against treating you with a diminished view. And instead, let us see your beauty and your grace and your love and power. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.